be seated. We, um, I'll be honest, this is a little bit more of just a, I kind of like it. It's like I'm getting to go back to teaching Sunday school. That's something I've missed for a few years. But it's just a little bit more of a Bible study. Um, and, and it's actually it's probably a really good start. If I was going to do a series teaching through the book of Hebrews, this would be a good start. And I don't know. I'm studying through Hebrews a little bit, and I've got several weeks to study through Hebrews a little bit. Um, I want to. I want to be. Um, to be a pastor, you got to do what you believe God wants you to do, and the thing that I know that God wants me to do is certainly to to groom preachers around here. We have got many, many men in this church that are called to preach, and so we've got a couple things going on. I've got a couple of missionaries coming in that that'll present their work and and have them preach while they're here. Um, there are people that I know. There are people, I'll be honest with the mission board for what we have and funds is full. I tell them where to come. I don't have room to take up another missionary, but you can come and present your work and basically put them on a waiting list. Isn't it good to have 90-something missionaries and have a waiting list of those that we want to pick up? But um, I've got a couple of coming in. but also have several of our preachers scheduled over the next several weeks to preach on Sunday night um, to give them an opportunity to be in the pulpit. I'm, I'm excited about the way that'll go for the next several weeks. So maybe, maybe I may come back and pick this up in a few weeks and actually do a Bible study here through um, the book of Hebrews. But uh, we're going to start here tonight. I, I just figured since it'd probably be a small crowd, and to be honest, I can figure it'd be a crowd of Bible students and in prayer warriors, and that'd be a good opportunity. Matter of fact, what I really need to do is just put us all right here in one little section and come down there and make it a Sunday school class, but I know how people are about their seats. I know y'all like being where you're at, and I don't want to just quench the spirit before I even get started right here. So uh, we'll, we'll just go ahead. If you want to turn to the book of Hebrews, but I'm really not going to read very much there. If you want to open to Hebrews chapter 1 and hold your place there, I will look at a couple things in it. I may read a little bit from some of them. I'm mostly just going to make reference to the Scripture. But a lot of times, I make reference to the Apostle Paul. And that's kind of one of the things I want to give you a little bit of, of background. I know a lot of times I, I make statements and I'll say, well, you know, if Paul is the author of Hebrews, or I'll make a, a reference. So a lot of times I may say, you know, Paul, we already know that he wrote at least 13 books of the New Testament and 14 if we credit Hebrews to him. But I've never really taken time. Again, that's really more something I would typically do in a Sunday school to break down a teaching. But that's something I want to try to take time and do here tonight to give some evidence, I guess you'd say, um, as to why I lean that way. But just a little bit of stuff. be honest, it's just teaching the Word of God. Anytime if we're teaching the Word of God, it's good. Anybody say amen. amen. So kind of a process of elimination, if you will. Um, some, some say that Paul signs himself as the author of all the other books. So why would he have not signed this one? Why would he have written it differently? Why would it be written differently? Well, I'll give you some other reasons in a minute, but one of them, um, it's been said that maybe he dictated this letter. Maybe eyesight was a problem. Maybe darkness was a problem. Maybe he dictated this one and, and somebody else actually penned it down. That's just some things. But and some people have claimed that Luke would have been the writer because Luke kind of has his style of writing a little bit. But to be honest, Luke was a Gentile. And because of the letter and the way the letter is written, it is almost impossible this letter would have been written by Luke. 
Um, Barnabas is some of the one of the ones that, that some people certainly have given an accreditation to, and, and he is both a Jew and, and he's even a Levite, but there's absolutely no evidence in the letter or anywhere else. When, you, when you're looking at something, you've got to look at context of everything around to try to justify something. You can't just look in one single little spot. A lot of people base a lot of false religions off of those kind of things, right? They take a passage or a couple of passages and they build a religion around a couple of passages. But everything has to work in context. And there's just really not anything there to support Barnabas. And some people give credit to Timothy. And I'm really surprised. Um, I actually own a study Bible. It's a Schofield study Bible. And it's got some great commentaries. It's got some great study help. I use it a lot. I've been using it a lot. I taught out of that Bible for years teaching Sunday school. Um, I, I've, I've traveled a good bit in the southeast preaching out of that Bible. Certainly nothing wrong with King James Bible. Um, the, the study part of it, of course, is, is men's, you know, scholars and things that, that they put in. But I'm surprised because in that Bible I was noticing as I was kind of studying that, that it describes Timothy as being the author of the book. Now, I'm only puzzled by that because of the fact that it would name anybody as author of a book. It could have at least said that we believe or thought of but to be honest, almost all scholars that, that you'll ever study will tell you the same thing. We don't know. And you can't claim what you don't know. If God doesn't tell you, then you don't know that. So, so it, it, it's a little crazy, but I'm surprised that of all people that it would give credit to is Timothy because at the end of the letter, it refers to our brother Timothy. So why would Timothy write a letter to him and refer to himself as our brother? So that one kind of doesn't make really any sense to me. Apollos has been named by some but Apollos is kind of one of those newer inventions, if you will. Matter of fact, Dr. Martin Luther King was one of the ones that described the writing of Hebrews. Some of the, the more recent people, none of, none of the older crowd, I can tell you if you study older scholars and their work, none, none of them give credit to Apollos. But there are some, I said more recent days, but again, there, there's no evidence to support that. And then Clement of Rome, um, we know that he wrote a letter to the Corinthians, and we know that he talked about this letter to the Hebrews, but it's not likely that he would have written this one because they rejected the Hebrews for many years, so it's not likely that he would have written a letter there to them. Uh, what we do have is that Clement of Rome made a reference to the Hebrews. We don't, just like we don't have the author, we don't really have the exact date of this letter either. Most of them, they can date certainly within 50 years, but sometimes within a 10 or 12 year window. We really don't have a date for Hebrews, but because he made mention to it somewhere around 95 A.D., we know it had to have been written before that. And because some other things that happened at about 75 A.D., we can kind of close the window right in there and know that this letter probably came somewhere in that window. But mm, Clement of Rome writing, it seems to, to not be very likely at all. And then those that claim that Paul was not the author, well, they kind of claim that around the style of the writings. They say that the style of the writing is different than all of the other styles. Well, again, I already told you, some of them say that maybe he, he dictated the letter and somebody else penned it. But another thing that is a definite reality is that the other 13 letters are written to the Gentiles. They're written to the church. This one in verse number 1 says that it's written to the Hebrews. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, anytime you're back in this day and anytime you're referring to, when you start talking about in times past and the fathers and anything revealed to the fathers and anything by the prophets, you're talking about the Old Testament. And if you're talking about the Old Testament, you're talking about the fathers and you're talking about the prophets, then you have to be talking about the Jew. Because that's God's people, right? 
So we know that this particular letter would have been written to the Hebrews. We do know for a fact that Paul did indeed write a letter to the Hebrews. We know that for a fact because it's mentioned. Peter mentioned it when he wrote his letter to them. Chapter 3 and verse 15 of 2 Peter he said, Account that for the longsuffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. So we know that he wrote him a letter. As also in his epistles, epistles meaning letters, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to be understood, which they are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. So we know for a fact that whether it's this letter or whether it's another letter that the Holy Spirit didn't hand us down, we do know for a fact that the Apostle Paul did indeed write a letter to the Hebrews. Another evidence um, just like that in many of Paul's letters I mentioned a while ago that it mentions Timothy as our beloved brother. I don't think Timothy would have mentioned himself as our beloved brother, but Paul did that quite often. Just another thing that would kind of support Paul. Um, also, just like in the other the Pauline letters, as you read at the end of them, it's very obvious when Paul writes a letter, when he gets into his clothes and is talking to the people, it's very obvious that the people he's writing to know him very well. And, and it's the same in this letter. It seems as though the audience would have, would have very well known the person that's sending this letter. So for myself and, and many others, Paul simply would be the most likely candidate. Um, even though Paul is sent to the Gentiles, he basically is a missionary to the Gentiles, an evangelist to the Gentiles, Paul still never lost sight of the fact of Israelite. When he went in to set up a new work, when he went in to do a work, you'll notice that he always went to the Jews first. He went to the Jewish brethren, and he gathered together within the Jewish church, and he gathered together a group of prayer warriors, if you will, kind of what we'd call them now. And so he gathered things together, so he never lost sight of who he was. Paul's first recorded sermon is in Acts chapter 13, verses 16 through 41. He preached there at Antioch. But, but based on his sermon, he, he based it on the history and on the promises and on the hopes of Israel and on the coming and on the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ according to the Gospels. Um, Clement of Alexandria, I mentioned earlier about somebody that mentioned the Apostle Paul and kind of where we narrowed some dates down in probably 175 to 190 A.D. He's one of the first ones that actually ascribed this letter to the Apostle Paul. Um, once again, it wasn't there, so he can't prove it, but that's kind of the first one to put it there. But, but I, I tend to believe that Paul is the most likely author that penned this book. Now, that's just my two cents worth. You know how much it matters? None. Whether Paul wrote it or whether Apollos wrote it or whether Luke wrote it or whether John, Mark, or Matthew wrote it, it would make, wouldn't make any difference. We know who wrote it is the Holy Spirit. We know that because Timothy told us that. We know that all Scripture is breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. So what we know is that whether Paul wrote it or not, the Holy Spirit is the one that gave it to us, and the Holy Spirit is the one that sent it down, and the Holy Spirit is the one that handed it to Faith Baptist Church in 2019. The Holy Spirit is the one that gave it to you and I to guide our lives and to live our lives by. So I want to look just a little bit more at the book for just a few minutes, and then uh, we'll love on somebody and, and go to the house. But there's a lot of key words. I'm going to use, look at just a few of them, but key words that are used throughout the letter. One of the key words that is used often here um, in the book of Hebrews is perfection. But perfection doesn't mean without sin. It basically is describing the contrast or the difference between a mature Christian and an immature Christian. Can I tell you there is a difference? 
There is a difference between the Christian that prays every day and reads every day and the Christian that shows up at church every once in a while. There is a difference between the Christian who professes Christ at work, professes Christ at school, professes Christ at the gas station, professes Christ at the grocery store, professes Christ at the mall, professes Christ as my Savior, professes Christ as the one who washed away my past, made all things new, and the one who never mentions the name of Christ. There is the one who, a difference between the one who will occasionally wear a t-shirt that says something about being a Christian and somebody who lives a life that lets everybody else know that they are a Christian. I'm just saying there's a contrast there, and that's kind of what we see in the word perfection. Eternal is another word that we see scattered throughout, and, and the word eternal obviously is just what it says, but it emphasizes the eternal nature of Christianity. Our salvation is eternal. Nothing can take it away. Another word that's, that's used quite often here, as a matter of fact, this one's considered to be the theme of the letter. Um, the word is better. Everything is better. And that, like I said, that, that one's kind of considered to, to be the theme. But it shows a contrast between Judaism and Christianity. A better way of putting it is between legalism and love. It shows a contrast and difference between the letter of the law and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you are glad that we're living under the grace and mercy of a loving God and not still under the letter of the law? Thank God for grace. So what we see in it is that Christ is better than the angels. By using the word better, it lets us know that we have a better covenant. We have a better promise. We have a better sacrifice. We have a better resurrection. We have a better hope, a better promise, a better future. As a matter of fact, in Christ, we just have a better everything. That's about the easiest way to say it instead of going through the whole list of it. In Christ, we just have a better everything. But also sprinkled throughout the letter, we have five warnings here in it. And I'm just going to kind of breeze past those, but if the Lord moves me to do so, and come back and we do a study in the book of Hebrews. We'll cover these a little deeper. But the first warning is in chapter 2 there in the first four verses. If we look back at the context of chapter 1, it tells us that Christ is more than the angels. What we see in chapter 1 is that he is superior in his majesty because he's the son of God. And he is superior in his ministry as the son of man. And because of this, we're to pay special attention to the word of God because it is spoken by and spoken about the son of God. It, it is given in inspiration by the Holy Spirit of God about the Son of God. So this first warning has to do with disregarding the Son of God. If you have no Christ, you have nothing. Everything is about Christ. The punishment for denying Christ is obviously on the spiritual side of things. If you deny Christ, then you're a spiritual loser. Because if you deny Jesus Christ, you have no spiritual life. You are spiritually dead. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. If you do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not have Christ, then you are not born of the Spirit. The second warning it comes there in chapter 3, continues on over into chapter 4. It deals with Israel's failure to enter into the promises of God. This would be a really good one to study as the church. This one would be a really good one to study for the Christian and the casual Christianity that we see today because what it deals with is how the nation of Israel, they trusted in God to bring them out of Egypt, but they didn't trust in him enough to take them into the promised land. They trusted God to deliver them from where they were, 
2019. They trusted God to forgive them of their sin. They trusted God to cleanse them in the blood. They trusted God to make old things pass away. They just didn't fully trust him and the old things become new. That's what the nation of Israel did. They, they trusted him. They, they trusted him to bring them out, but they didn't trust him to carry them into the promised land. And because of that, that entire generation died in the wilderness. They never saw the promise of God because they chose not to believe God. They chose to believe that those giants were too big. They chose to believe the few spies that said we're but grasshoppers in their eyes. A good thing to remember right there real quick is it didn't say that they saw them as grasshoppers. It didn't say that you saw us as grasshoppers. It said that they saw themselves as grasshoppers. It doesn't matter if you see yourself as a grasshopper as long as you know that God can take you as a grasshopper and conquer whatever's in front of you. So they saw God as big enough to solve part of their problem. But they didn't see God as big enough to solve all of their problems. They saw God as big enough to erase their sins. But they didn't see God as big enough to save their marriage. They saw God as big enough to deliver them from their past. But they didn't see God as big enough to take care of their financial situation. They saw God as big enough to, to shed Jesus' blood to make old things pass away, but they didn't see God as big enough to come in and take care of the problems at work and all the things that we do. They, they only saw part of the promise. Because of their doubt and their disbelief, too many Christians today are living in the same place. They're saved from their past, but they have no victory. The third one in there is in chapter 5, carries on over into chapter 6. It has to do with the great high priest. It has to do with discrediting the Son of God. The punishment for that one would be on the eternal side of things. Anybody that turns away from Christ, anybody that denies the Lord Jesus Christ, they are warned of the impossibility of ever being saved. Christ is the only way. Their attitude towards Christ reveals the condition of their soul. You reject Christ, you lose heaven, period. No two ways about it, point blank. Hebrews is the same as the rest of the Word of God. It doesn't cut any slack. Christ is the answer. There is no other way. Warning number four comes in the last part of chapter 10. The greatest privilege given in the entire, I, I guess I should probably say this as an opinion, but I think it's more than an opinion. But for me, the greatest privilege given in all of the Old Testament was only given to one man one time a year. One high priest one time a year was allowed to walk in behind the veil. One man one time a year was allowed to walk into the most holy place, the holy of holies. One man one time a year was allowed to walk into the presence of Almighty God. But because Jesus gave himself on Calvary's cross, God reached down and took that veil and he rent it in twain, tore it in half from top to bottom. So that you and I and every child of God, 24-7, 365, I preached on it this morning, call unto me. 
and I will answer thee. And I will show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. There's never a time when the line's busy. There's never a time when you can't call. There's never a time when he's asleep. There's never a time that you can't step right around behind the veil into the presence of an almighty loving God, creator of all the universe that can solve all your problems, take care of all your heartaches, move all of your mountains, fill all of your valleys. You can walk into his presence anytime you want because the blood of Jesus Christ was shed and God Almighty rent the veil and said, you and I can come into the presence of a holy, sovereign, righteous God anytime we want to. In all of the Old Testament, one day a year, one man could do what every one of us can do. Kings and prophets have desired to have what you and I have. But of all the kings of the Old Testament, God-fearing or not, they all desired to have what you have. To walk into the presence, to walk into the throne room of a mighty God. Verse number 31 of chapter 10 says, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The warning deals with those who turn away from the Spirit. Verse, or, um, the fifth warning comes in chapter number 12, the last half of the chapter. The context of the chapter has to deal with the heroes of faith. It, it deals with them coming off chapter 11. But it's dealing with the ones who in their day... They dared to believe God. I said they dared to believe God. In the face of adversity, in the face of trials and troubles, in the face of all kind of danger and ridicule, in the face of all kind of peer pressures and all kind of social pressures and all kind of worldly pressures and all kind of political correctness, in, in the face of all of it, they dared to believe God. One of the reasons that I don't study Sunday night's messages too much before Sunday morning is because I'll preach them both on Sunday morning. We won't get out to 1230, and I don't have nothing left to preach on Sunday night. But automatically this morning, I remember an invitation. When I looked at it, I reached back, and I stole this from the night. But proof of true salvation is daring to believe God when everything around you says it makes no sense. Daring to believe God when everything around you seems to be falling apart. Daring to believe God when everything around you seems to be coming unglued. But you press on in the power of God. True Christianity. The warning there has to do with disobeying God. It's illustrated there in that that chapter by, by Esau. Esau who traded away spiritual perfection... For temporary things. He he traded away the spiritual for the physical. He traded away that of the kingdom for that of the world. The warning there gives a contrast between Sinai and and Zion. Can can I tell you, it, it is an incredible warning for this casual Christianity world that we're living in today to pay attention to. He wanted the world's values more than he wanted the things of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. He said, I'll seek the things of the world first. And I'll worry about getting the things of God when I get to eternity. It don't work like that. 
You get the things of eternity by seeking them now. And God will take care of the worldly things. If there's anything in this world he wants you to have, he'll take care of the things. But we seek God. But we see the emphasis there placed on, on this glorious place. Anybody excited about the place that you and I are going to? The place that God has promised. The place that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. Anybody excited? It, it focuses on the place that true believers are going to be brought into. Hebrews chapter 12, it says in verse 18, You're not coming to the mount that might be touched and, and that burn with fire, nor into the blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, which the voice that they heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure that which was commanded, and so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But you are coming to Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church, firstborn, which are written in heaven, and, and God the, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. There's that word better again that carries the theme throughout the book. So the emphasis is placed on this glorious place that you and I are going to be ushered into along with every true believer that has ever lived that's trusted in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ will be carried there by Jesus Christ himself. So I told you chapter 1, it deals with Jesus being superior, superior in his majesty as the Son of God, superior in his ministry as the Son of Man, but he's superior as our Savior being the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. In the first, really in the first four verses, but it doesn't start until the second verse, but in the first four verses, there's a sevenfold description of the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse number two, we see that Christ is appointed by God, number one, as the heir of all things. He goes on to say, by whom also he made the world. So we know that Christ is the creator of all things. We know that that's supported by John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. It was not anything made that was made without Him. And not anything made that was made. Right? So we have the support of 1 John telling us that in the beginning, Jesus Christ was there. In the beginning, Jesus Christ is a creator. So that's what it says there in our verse. The third thing we see is that Christ is the possessor of deity. In verse number 3, it says, Who being the brightness of his glory. That goes on to be supported there in John chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The fourth thing we see there is that Christ is the exact representation of God, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Jesus is God in the flesh. And Adam was made in God's own image. Let us make man in our own image. You and I are made in the image of Adam. That's why we must be born again. We must be born that which is the Spirit. Adam was already created that way, but the Spirit died because of the sin. The fifth thing we see there is that Christ is the one who upholds all things. You don't need anybody else. 
You don't need anything else. All you need is Christ. Christ is the only one who upholds everything. The sixth thing we see is that Christ alone is the only one who has purged us from our sins. There is no other way. There's no other way to be forgiven. There's no other way to have your sins washed away. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other way to get to heaven. There's no other way to live eternal life in glory. There is no other way. Christ alone is the only one who has shed his blood. He is the only one who has laid down his life. He's the only one that had the power to lay down his life and the power to take it up again. And he's the only one that has the power to give you eternal life. The only one that purges from our sins. And then the seventh thing we see is that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. A place of great honor and a place of great authority. So right there in three verses, you have seven things about Jesus Christ. I don't have time to do a number study, but I'll just give you those two numbers. The number three is the resurrection. The number seven is completion and perfection. And in those three verses, you have the complete, perfect picture of yours and my salvation. How we get it, where it comes from, and who secures it, that we can know that it can never be taken away. So, Lord willing, I'm going to keep studying this. Um, I'm going to keep studying Hebrews, and I'm going to try to study it for myself Lord's will it, it may be a Sunday night Bible study um, after a few weeks of, of several preachers getting to step up and, and fill a pulpit and um, exercise what God has called them to do and I do believe that that is my duty to make sure that those men are groomed to be what God has called them to be and the only way they do that is, is by them being in a pulpit and preaching um, one of the hardest things, I was talking to somebody about it the other day. Might have been Brandon. I was talking with somebody that's preaching. It's one of the hardest things that I've had trouble doing as a pastor is reading this book for me. I used to love to sit down and read the Old Testament stories. Y'all like the Old Testament stories? Listen, I love reading the Gospels, man. I love the assurance. And I tell every new Christian Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They say, what I need to do, I, you just got saved, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What I do when I get through, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, so read the same thing twice. No, read the same thing five times. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. After you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John four or five times, then read Matthew to Jude. Do not read Revelation. Leave it alone. You'll get there. Leave it alone. You're not going to understand it until you read Daniel anyway. You're not going to understand it until you study and put the two together and the Holy Spirit reveals some stuff. Leave it alone. Don't, don't confuse yourself in, in, in that just yet. Just, just read the New Testament. But, but I say that knowing that within myself, I love the Old Testament stories. I just I like to take them and read. And, and, and it's crazy. I'm not much on reading books, but I love these books. Man, I love the storyline. I love just taking and just and getting into a story. but I really don't have that ability anymore. Because every time I start reading, I start thinking Sunday's coming. And if the Lord's already given me this Sunday, next Sunday ain't but seven days later. 
I'm always looking for something. I'm always digging. I'm always trying to find a message. It kind of it kind of just takes back. And even in Hebrews, just sitting down, I just was going to sit down and read it. And I was like, no, there's so much more to it than that. So what I am going to try to do for, for the next few weeks as, as these men are preaching on Sunday evenings is I'm just going to try to study that for me because there is an incredible wealth of knowledge in the book of Hebrews. Um, and I think you can see it just from a little highlighted study. But what I do want to do before we go tonight, I want us to take a few minutes. I want to come to the altar and I want us to pray. I want us to pray for Camp Truth. I want us to pray for a hedge of protection. I want us to pray for the safety of the leaders. I want us to pray for the safety of the children. I want us to pray that if there's any child in that camp who does not know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that this is their week. That one of the days this week, the Holy Spirit of God draws them that Jesus Christ is high and lifted up and draws them unto him, and that those children become saved. Man, statistics show that the older you get, the harder it is. The older you get, the less likely it is. I, I want you to pray that the Holy Spirit would take the ones that are already saved and that he would draw them and that he would begin to teach them and to shape them and to make them as we, as we study this morning and go ahead and shape them into preachers and teachers and whatever they're going to be when they grow up, that they stray not away from the Word of God because I'm an example. Thank God I'm, I'm, I'm another side example, but I know what it's like to have been brought up in church and then turn around and run from it because that's when you've been there, done that, bought the T-shirt. I know what it is, and I don't want nothing to do with it. Leave me alone. Grew up in it, heard it my whole life, don't care, see you, done. Can I tell you, those that come up in church and then get out there sometimes are so much harder to reach than the one that's never heard the gospel. They're just hungry to hear the truth if they've never heard it before. But those of us that heard it and ran from it are hard to reach. I want to pray that God would put a hedge of protection around those children, that they're never like that, that they never run. That they just live their lives pleasing to God. But, but I, I thank God that I do have a testimony. I, I, Brandon, I got to share this. I, gotta sh I was going to give this to you for a message. You may want to make a message out of this. Brandon and I went fishing Tuesday. And Brandon had a fish on that I'm pretty sure was probably over 20 pounds. And this fish takes off down the river and he's using one of my reels and so I want to get this thing on video. So I'm up there trying. I, by the way, if you ever call me, if I go fishing, I'm sorry. I can't get to where you are anyway. So the phone is turned off and put in a dry box. The whole reason for going is to just try to get a little bit of time alone. I'm trying to get my phone out, get everything on. I'm going to video him catching this fish. I finally get out. And just about the time I get it on, his line breaks. So I'm talking to him about getting this fish in. And on a bait caster, for those of you who don't know, you can see the spool. You can see the line. You can see it when you throw it out. You can see it when you're reeling it in. You see it throwing out. And, and so what happens, it has a drag. Anybody know what a drag on a reel is? Help me out here. A few people know what a drag is. The drag is what you set that protects the line. If you only have a 15-pound line, you don't set your drag really, really heavy. The fish will break it. So the fish is just running. And the drag is just spooling out. And it's just going. And Brandon said, I was trying to get him in, but he just kept going out. And, and I was trying to reel him, but, but the line. So, so I had to put my thumb on it to stop him from getting out. I said, you put your thumb on the spool. 
He said, I had to. He was going out. I said, you broke your line. That's what, that's what the drag's for. I, I, I don't say this. I mean, we, we had a good time. But, brother, there's so, God gave me something that night that blew my mind. God will let us run. See, what the drag does, it lets the fish run. But it keeps pressure on the fish. So that when he's running, he gets tired. So that eventually, he can be reeled back in. But what happens when the fish gets to the boat, especially a big one, he sees the boat and he says, oh no, I don't want none of that. The drag lets him run again, but it keeps tension on him. It keeps pressure. It don't ever just let him go. It keeps pressure on him. Eventually, he's going to get tired. And he's going to reel him back in. And it doesn't matter how many times he runs, that drag ain't going to let him get away. God's got a drag on his children. Those children over there, they may do like Donald Gancy. They may grow up and get to a college age, and they may run, but God's got a drag set on them that's only going to let them run so far. Just keep on praying for them. Keep on praying for yours. Keep on praying for moms and dads and grandparents and whoever you're praying for that is lost. Just keep on praying for them. Let them be like Robin Campbell's 97-year-old professed atheist grandfather that gave his heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's going to heaven after 97 years of denying that Jesus Christ ever existed. He's going to heaven because one day the drag just kept on pulling him back. There's something built inside of mankind. There's a void inside of us that just keeps on saying there's something that you're missing. People try drugs. People try alcohol. People try men and women, opposite sex. They try everything to fill that void, but nothing fills the void but Jesus Christ. And until you put Jesus Christ in the void, you're never going to fill it. And it doesn't matter how hard people try to run, that void is a drag on our life that eventually they get tired and it'll just keep on pulling it back. Isn't God good? He built us. I'm sorry, brother, I didn't mean to tell him about your fish breaking off, but that was just such a good thing God gave me that night. I wanted to give it to you and let you make a message out of it, and you still can. That was a really good message in the drag. God's just not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he's got the drag set that he won't ever let us go. Isn't God good? God, thank you so much for loving us. God, thank you so much for being so good to us. God, I thank you for grace and, and for mercy, but God, I thank you for the little things, God. God, we, Lord, if we just seek your kingdom, the air conditioner works. The car runs. The washer and the dryer works. God, it's about your kingdom. It's not about the stuff. God, help us, Father, to seek you with everything we have. And God, I thank you for this book, for everything in it, God. But I thank you that I can look at three verses verse 2, 3, and 4 of the book of Hebrews. And I can see everything about Christ that I need to know. That it shows me everything about Christ in, in my relationship, God. I just, 
God, I just thank you so much. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for these people, God, your people. Lord, we come as brothers and sisters in Christ, God. Lord, I'm just asking you, would you bless everybody in this place? God, I pray you'd open the windows of heaven and pour out your blessings on them. God, I pray you'd bless everybody in this building with wisdom. Your word says if we lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally. God, we lack wisdom. I pray you'd give wisdom to everybody in this place. I pray you'd give discernment, God, that we might see between right and wrong, between good and evil, that we might make good choices. God, I pray that you'd bless everybody in this building right now with a special anointing, God. I pray you'd put a light in their life that the world sees Christ in us, God. Lord, I pray you'd touch every one of them. And God, we pray for those children over there this week. God, I pray a hedge about that campus. And God, I pray you'd ban Satan and his demons away from that place. And may the power of God move over there for the next week, God. And I pray you'd help us that everything that we do, we'd be found pleasing to you, God. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.